Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate. Lots of questions swirling around like confetti. Lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain. Sleepless nights, shallow breathing. Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a sane split. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. Communication, such a powerful tool in our relationships with one another, with the world around us, so vital to our very existence on this planet with its complex network of rights, obligations, competition for physical space, and for some groups, even the right to exist. Communication is a central theme in separation. Often, problems with it contribute to the breakdown of a relationship. Or the inability to communicate effectively may be a symptom of another issue, perhaps buried deeper under the surface, which is loosening the previously healthy roots of that relationship. Communication is also vital on the separation journey. The steps separated parties have to take to deal with all of the issues which have to be addressed when a relationship breaks down. This involves dialogues, messaging, exchange of ideas, verbal and nonverbal, between the separated spouses, between lawyers and clients, mediators and those mediating, judges and the parties, and many more. Difficulties with communication often act like a clog, a jam in the machinery of separation. They prevent the completion of the separation process from beginning to end and sometimes even interfere for months or years after the separation itself in allowing parents, for example, to communicate effectively with one another about their children. Mediation and counseling help in clearing some of those jams. But this episode is not about mediation or counseling. It's about communication itself. I could think of no better person to tackle this topic with me than Catherine Rajak, 
a fellow family law lawyer and mediator, but also, importantly, someone who is no stranger to the very act of communicating and the theory behind it on stage, as part of her coaching work, as mediator, and advocate before the court. Catherine and I have known each other personally and professionally for many years now, and I think that comes through in our discussion, which I enjoyed very much. Honestly, I could talk with her for hours, including because I find many of her approaches to communication as a subject innovative and refreshing. She has a great turn of phrase, and she's able to convey her messages in a straightforward but also an engaging way, which is one of her strengths as a coach and teacher. Here is my conversation with Catherine. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Catherine, welcome. I am so very pleased that I have a chance to speak with you today. Excited, actually. In the intro to each one of my episodes, I touch on what people who are separating may be experiencing, and that includes shallow breathing. You are the person to talk to about that, where that shallow breathing comes from and how it might impact one's perception of separation, the ability to resolve conflict, and so on. Tell us a bit about yourself, please, so my listeners can appreciate why I thought you would be the ideal guest for our topic today. Well, um, I'm just about to become a senior citizen, so I've had a pretty long career, so um, interrupt me if I uh, give you too much detail or go on too long. So um, I started out as an actress-singer. Um, when I was in my teens and into my 20s. And then shortly after I had my first child, I began to work as a publicist and a producer in the theater and through a communication uh, company that I had with my first husband. So um, I did that for quite a while and then transitioned into social services for several years. And I worked on poverty issues in Toronto. And while I was doing that, I was very involved with Second Harvest, which still exists. I served as the executive director there for several years. And then I also started an organization called Food Share with the support of the then mayor, Art Eagleton. So during that time, I did a lot of public speaking and I made a lot of media appearances uh, supporting those organizations through those years. Then in my mid-30s, I decided to go back to school. So I went to law school. Um, I had, you know, since I had been doing some advocacy work, I wanted to carry that on through um, through the law. And so I, uh, I went to Osgoode Hall and I practiced family law and did a lot of trials on a regular basis um, once I had started practicing. But um, about 15 years in, I started to notice that I was having some difficulties with my voice. I got laryngitis a few times. I... I was experiencing sort of a huskiness and a bit of cracking in my voice. And, you know, this was pretty unusual for me because I'd spent years as a performer as well as speaking publicly with no problem. So I began to look at that issue for myself really seriously. And I discovered that a lot of my voice difficulties really 
stemmed from tension. It stemmed from tension in my body and also an inadequate breathing. I began to wonder perhaps also, (laughs) and you might relate to this as another female lawyer, but I started to think that maybe I had been artificially lowering my voice to sound more commanding in the courtroom, which I think, you know, is still an environment that is pretty male dominated and really is structured on a male paradigm. So um, I started taking breath workshops, getting some coaching and working on one, one-on-one um, with some coaches. And then uh, eventually I ended up traveling to the UK and I'm very pleased to say that I just received my MFA in voice training and coaching with distinction at the Royal School of Speech and Drama. So it's kind of interesting because, you know, here I am this late in my career and my life, having just gone to what in effect was somewhat of a drama school, which is something I had wanted to do when I was 19 um, and didn't do uh, because I pursued other avenues. So anyway, um, I enjoyed the course very much, learned a lot, uh, learned a lot about movement, about our bodies, about voice. And uh, so now I'm offering uh, breathing and communication exercises to my mediation clients, as well as to others who are coming to me for, uh, for workshops or coaching. So I work um, the voice and breath exercises into my conflict management workshops. And I'm also doing one-on-one coaching for lawyers and other professionals who've got some vocal issues or simply wish to make stronger vocal presentations in the courtroom or other public speaking environments. So anyway, um, I have to say that there are real challenges right now, of course, with COVID restrictions um, in doing that, but certainly one-on-one coaching can be done online and, you know, workshops um, I do like to conduct in person. And so Luckily, with the good weather this summer, I've been able to do things outside in the backyard of my office, which has been great. That is, Catherine, a breathtaking career. I know you will humbly disagree, but uh, (laughs) that's what I think. And congratulations on your London stint. I think that's very exciting and impressive. So when I planned this episode and mapped it out, I must admit I had some difficulty narrowing our focus because frankly I could speak about this area of your expertise and the interests and skills we share for hours. So we are both family law lawyers, mediators, communicators, observers of conflict, conflict managers, conflict solvers. And you bring into the equation your experience on stage, the supreme form of communication as far as I'm concerned, and formal training in communication using your breath, uh, voice, and bodies. I thought we could focus on five main areas, and we're not going to tackle them necessarily in sequence because I think that would make our dialogue a little bit uh, artificial, but I just wanted to give our listeners a general idea of what I hope we can talk about. So number one, how the circumstances of separation and the avalanche of emotions that come with it impact 
communication in that context. Number two, uh, what steps a person whose relationship has ended can take to address these potential problems. And number three, I would like us to talk a little bit about separation-related conflict and contributors to it, internal, external, the not-so-obvious ones, perhaps. Number four, and I'm very interested to speak with you about this, and that is how to turn conflict into a constructive learning experience. That's definitely an area of your expertise. And finally, a topic about which I speak and write a lot, and that is written communication in the context of separation, for example, by email and text. Mm -hmm. How does all this strike you? No, I mean, I think all of those subject uh, subject areas are very interesting and particularly in the context of family law, um, whether it be in a court, whether it be in a mediation arbitration um, or any other sort of negotiating context. Um, I mean, as a family lawyer, we generally see the nicest people as well as the not so nice people uh, behaving at their worst often. And that's because it's a very stressful, emotional, painful process, uh, regardless of which sort of avenue of, of process that you, you choose to try and resolve the conflict. And, you know, when people are separating, it's a very, um, very difficult uh, upheaval for not only themselves, but their family, their children, uh, extended family. And people can respond with anxiety, anger, aggression, fear, so all of those heightened emotions really uh, affect us physically, and sometimes we don't even realize it. But we do tense up our muscles, we grit our teeth, our breath becomes shallow, and frankly, sometimes we forget to breathe at all. Um, so, you know, it, it's kind of an obvious thing to say that breath is life. I mean, without it, we die. But continuous shallow breathing, holding our breath, that can cause subtle problems in our bodies that interfere with our ability to speak and to communicate. There is a breath-brain connection. I mean, breath brings oxygen to our entire body and brings oxygen to our brain. And so without enough oxygen reaching the brain, our, our thinking becomes muddled and we have difficulties expressing ourselves. And it also affects our vocal production. So any useful, necessary communication with an ex-partner or anyone for that matter, uh, becomes compromised. So really this concern about breath, I mean, it's very relevant for our clients, but it also affects lawyers and mediators and other family law professionals as well. You know, we, we're often affected by the emotions of our clients. Um, it does seep into our bodies uh, sometimes, and, um, and that's very difficult. But... Frankly, we also have our own stresses and conflicts that arise around just keeping our, our sort of careers going, but also that arise from interacting with our opponents, sometimes dealing with, you know, difficult judges, um, even just navigating the court process. Um, all these tensions that can ensue um, can compromise our own communicative performance. So, um so, you know, the, the, this whole idea of our, the, the entire physicality of the person, 
um, which of course, you know, is, is generated and moves through our breath. Um, it's kind of an obvious thing, but um, it's something I think sometimes we take so much for granted that we don't really um, use it optimally. We have both experienced that. I know that. For me, if I am involved in a in a hearing or if I'm mediating, at the end of the day, I generally have at least a mild headache. And I'm sure that has to do with the tension I'm holding in unconsciously and also uh, the shallower breaths I take than I would in a much more relaxed situation. So it's very interesting uh, stuff that you talk about. So I love to use hypotheticals, Catherine, and my listeners know that by now. So let's let's use a hypothetical. So Pat separated six months ago. He is angry and he is sad. Uh, he has trouble sleeping. And since the separation, he and Julie, with whom he has two kids, have had many fights in person, on the phone, and also in emails and texts. So Pat has noticed that when he thinks about the separation, his throat tightens. And when he and Julie fight, particularly in person, but also on the, on the phone, he quickly runs out of breath, and that makes him even more irritable. So when you meet him, he tells you, that when he and Julie fight, it's as if his head gets detached from the rest of his body. He feels disconnected, which he believes fuels the conflict. What would your advice to Pad be in a situation like this? Well, I mean, it's interesting that you say this because I actually very recently just had um, a very similar uh, discussion with one of my mediation clients. Um, and so I actually said, I said to him, okay, you know, don't think I'm crazy here, but, um, I'm going to give you some tips on how to cope with this. Um, so I took, uh, let's call him Pat, um, took Pat through a series of very simple physical exercises, um, that, that actually helped him, uh, become aware of his own habitual physical tensions. And you just mentioned your own self, you know, after a full day being at court, realizing you've got a bit of a headache. And, um, you know, throughout the day while you were working, you didn't even notice that. Um, it's after when you when you stopped that you start to realize, oh, there's some physical things going on in my body. So just a very simple exercise, for instance, is just simply, you know, tensing your fists. So really tensing your fists really, really tightly um, and then and holding them for five seconds and then just releasing. That simple exercise just highlights the difference between tension and relaxation because we often, as I said, hold tension as a habit and it becomes so familiar that we don't even realize that we do it. Um, I have another exercise where I have people lift up their arms. Um, so they've got their arms way over their head and they hold that until they start to feel tired in their arms. Then I tell them, okay, now drop your wrists, then drop your elbows, then drop your arms and now feel what your your what you feel in your shoulders, right? So that, again, it's just a very simple thing. It's not taxing at all. Um, so when I say physical exercises, I don't mean that they are taxing exercises. They are just simple, um, 
physical things that we can do to um, illustrate certain things and, and really contribute to a person's own self-awareness okay so they have they get a little bit more awareness of their own body and then after that i would introduce pat to some uh, quick breath exercises um, that can be used when you're facing a difficult confrontation and i mean that frankly i've used them in court myself um i mean i have one uh breath exercise that i really like which comes back actually from kundalini yoga and it is um it's a very uh it's called uh, um, it's called breath of fire, and it's a very fast breath where you're um, breathing quickly through your your nostrils, um, almost like a dog panting, but with your mouth closed. Um, that one is very helpful, but it can be very difficult and can make people a bit uh, um, dizzy if they're not used to it. And it's also something that's obvious um, if somebody sees you doing it. Whereas one that I used to use in court, where people would never know I was doing it if I was you know feeling particularly irritated with the other side or just really wanted to calm myself down. Um, and I've told this to my clients. Um, it's the second, seven second breath. So you just breathe in for seconds, seven seconds. You hold your breath for seven seconds and then you breathe out for seven seconds. Now this breath actually can be increased. So, you know, as you get better um, at really filling your body and using your diaphragm um, to breathe, um, then you can increase it to be 20 seconds. But I just tell people, do seven seconds breathing in, holding, seven seconds breathing out, and try and do it seven times. And I'm telling you, if you do that, it just changes the equilibrium of your body. It, it, just, it just has to. Um, so uh, once you've done it, then your body relaxes, your breath comes easier, and then, of course, your thoughts become more clear, and that enables you to speak um, in a more centered and calm way. I mean, I don't know, maybe I'll just tell you quickly. I think people don't even realize in terms of what happens to our body when we want to talk. You know, I mean, you talked about holding your breath or shallow breathing. But, you know, to, to want to communicate an idea or a feeling to a person, you basically have an impulse so, you know, there's a physiological mechanic uh, that comes from speaking. One is this impulse in the motor cortex of your brain um, because you want to communicate something. So then the imp that impulse stimulates the breath to enter and leave the body. And as the outgoing breath makes the contact with your vocal cords, then you're creating oscillations and those oscillations create vibrations. Those vibrations are amplified in your resonators, in your face. Uh, in your throat, your mouth, your, your nasal cavities, and then you have the resultant sound. So, you know, this is a very simple thing that happens to us that people don't really think about. But, you know, you have to have that impulse. I want to communicate something. You need some breath to make that come out of your body. And, and of course, we have these vocal cords that, that um, vibrate to make the sound. But it really isn't just your vocal cords. It's a whole physical experience, you know, as you breathe. And so the more relaxed you can be and the more full of, of good, solid breath that your body has to fuel itself, um, the more clear and the more compelling your uh, communication is going to be. So as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, Catherine, of a musical analogy. So music is a form of communication. I'm sure you and I would agree on that. And let's imagine someone playing a saxophone 
and they're about to uh, participate in a in a recital, and they want their saxophone uh, output, let's call it, to sound as beautiful and melodic and engaging. Well, they have to take regular deep breaths before they blow into the instrument, which is the tool of their communication. And I think if we formed more regular habits, if we were more mindful about the importance of connect of the connection between our thoughts and our breath, I think we would be a little bit uh, better at this. I ha- I formed this habit for a while. I've abandoned it now because I've become hopefully generally more mindful. I used to do breathing exercises every time I was on a red light at an intersection. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, you know, those few moments when you're sitting there and waiting for the light, I would just think of my breath and deep, you know, do uh, uh, not quite what you suggested, seven in, out and hold, but but something along those lines. So these are all very, very helpful comments. And I think very practical too. You know, these are not, you don't need special training to be mindful of breathing and to direct your breathing before a stressful conversation or a stressful presentation. So, so far uh, we have focused on the human experience of separation. I thought we might move into conflict as a theoretical construct, Catherine, and talk about what it is and what fuels it. And we can continue to use Pat and Julie as an example uh, if you want. So what what do you think about this area of our discussion? Well, I mean, you know, I, I think that... Um, as you say, working with Pat and Julie, uh, whether I was working with them as a couple in a mediation or individually in one-on-one coaching, I would uh, teach them some of these breath exercises that we've just talked about. But there's also the whole concept of listening skills um, and the idea of how to reframe the expression of your emotions um, in how in how you phrase what you want to say. Um, whether it's the expression of your own emotion, your own needs, or for that matter, you know, making some sort of settlement proposal. Um, so, again, you know, I think sometimes uh, people speak before they're ready. This whole, just to come back to the breath thing, I mean, I think if you are, if you take the time to breathe and you don't speak until you're actually ready to speak, so that you're not blurting, you're actually thinking about what you want to say, um, that is a beginning point. Uh, The other thing I think that I would like to just say about listening skills, um, again, I think that many times we don't really listen. We wait for the other person to stop talking so that we can say what we want to say, you know, so we're not really listening to what they say. So I, I have another exercise where I literally make people talk to each other. You know, they have to look at each other eyeball to eyeball and one person talks for 10 minutes and the other person cannot talk, cannot gesture, cannot say anything like, oh, yeah, like I have a relatable experience. You know, I, I know what you're talking about. Can't do that. You have to just sit there and listen. And you end up breathing with the person and actually listening. So I think that is also a good exercise for people um, who are in conflict to, to actually start thinking about, okay, am I actually listening to this person or am I just sitting in my own anger waiting for my turn to spit, you know? 
Um, so that's that's one thing. And then um, the whole idea of trying to uh, converse uh, in a collaborative and constructive way. Um, a, a, a lot of times that is really about rephrasing. And instead of saying, um, you make me so mad when you do blah, blah, blah. You can just flip that and say, I feel very angry when you do such and such because I can't, because I can't do something else. You know, so it's, it's, there's a, I feel this because, as opposed to you do this and these are the consequences, right? So the minute you start the sentence with you, then you're putting something on the, somebody on the defensive. Um, when you start talking about yourself, like nobody can deny what your own feelings are. You say, I feel this, you know, they have to respect that those are your feelings. And then you can have a conversation about, you know, whether you feel something because you misinterpret it um, or those feelings are valid or, or, or whatever. Um, so, you know, again, sometimes these most cliche things, these simple things, um, when you talk about it, it sounds so obvious, but we don't do them, <laughs> you know, we so often are really um, just motivated by impulse uh, and we don't take the time to sort of uh, breathe through the emotions and use the impulse in a constructive way. And the other thing I talk to people about is, is you know, this idea that conflict is an opportunity. Once you're in conflict with somebody, you have the chance to explore that. And if you explore it in a positive way, you can learn about yourself and you can learn about the other person. You can actually explore each other's needs as opposed to getting stuck in positions, you know, advocating for a position. You can talk about what, what do we each need and how can we come up with some interesting ideas and potential solutions to meet both parties' needs. So that would be in mediation talk, you're talking about uh, stating, uh, talking about interests as opposed to just stating positions, right? So as mediators, when we mediate, we peel the onion, we take off the layers to see what is actually behind each party's stated position. I want this, and uh, I'm sure you do this, and I do as well. We ask, why is that? Why is that thing you say you want important to you? What goal are you trying to achieve? So we're looking for their interests and not just what they verbalize as their positions. I think that's what you were alluding to. That reframing um, reference by you, I found very interesting. And I think reframing works for both the intended audience, but also for the speaker as well. Because I think over mm -hmm. time when people do the reframing exercise, the rephrasing, the reformulating the expression of their need or want or their feeling, they th start thinking about it differently as well. So when, when a person feels like they need to lash out or communicate uh, on impulse, and they actually stop themselves and try to rephrase what they're about to say, I think they become less aggressive themselves. I think they realize 
the way they were about to communicate was aggressive and perhaps there's another way of doing it. So that's my 10 cents worth on the reframing issue. But I agree with you that it's very, very important, particularly in the context of separation. So since I have you here, a very experienced uh, fellow family law lawyer and mediator, I thought we could spend some time on a topic which is of great interest to me and an issue we encounter every day in our work with our clients, whether as lawyers uh, or mediators. And that is communication in writing between people who are in the midst of separation conflict. Because from my perspective, this can be a minefield and that doesn't have to be. And there's so much potential here for misunderstanding, misinterpretation, misperception. Do you do you agree with this, Catherine? Well, absolutely. I mean, one of the difficulties with email, of course, and texting, similarly, is that people are employing only one mode of communication. So, you know, as human beings, we communicate with words, with body language, tone of voice, eye contact, and our general emotional energy. So in an email, we have words only. And the words may be interpreted incorrectly by the receiver when they don't have any of the other tools and nuances that we as human beings employ when we communicate. And then, of course, the other problem is that the writer may also say things that they would not otherwise say if they or or, or wouldn't say it in as harsh a way um, then they might not otherwise say if they were actually eyeballing the person in a direct interaction. And, you know, frankly, I I used to tell my kids this, even when they started the whole MSN thing and, you know, and people would drop, would also break up or would say things, you know, in texts. I mean, and I'm talking about kids, but, you know, we as family lawyers, we see this in the emails and the texts that go back and forth between our adult clients. Um, And again, you know, when we were talking about the whole idea of of, um, of constructive conflict and constructive uh, communication in conflict, one of the things that you alluded to is the fact that you know we if a person steps back from their own trigger points and their own defense mechanisms, then they can have a different perception about their own self and what they were trying to communicate. Uh, never mind the other person, um, but you know with email. I would say to somebody, you know, first of all, if you need to vent, I mean, go ahead and vent, but press save instead of send. And then look at what you wrote a few hours later, or even the next day, sometimes you need to sleep on it, uh, and decide, first of all, whether you actually want to send that missive at all, or do you want to send it as is, or maybe it could use some editing that would make the message a bit more productive. And, and also even just looking at the purpose of, of, the, of sending that email in the first place. You know, do you just want to vent anger because you're pissed? Or do you want to express a reasonable concern about children? Or are you making a proposal that you actually hope the other person will consider? So if you think about, you know, how you yourself would respond if you receive such a message, then it might make a difference as to how you actually want to relay that message. And then, of course, you know, let's not forget, of course, in litigation, when documents are ultimately going to end up in front of a judge or another decision maker, how will they respond when they see your email? 
um, there will no doubt be an exhibit to an affidavit. You know, does that email show you to be the person in a light that you want to be perceived? I think that, so you've given my listeners some great takeaways and the delay uh, advice is a fantastic one. And I've talked about it in a previous episode. You know, if you need to vent, write it down and put it aside and look at it again. And if you're unsure, show it to somebody else, which was my other suggestion. Right. Because even after a few hours, you may still not be in a position to realize that your uh, email is incendiary and that it really doesn't sound nice. So yes, the delay for sure. I, in moments like this, uh, bring in Bill Eddy. Bill Eddy is uh, an American family law lawyer, mediator, author, and he... Um, uh, has this uh, device called Biff. Uh, it's actually uh, a response device, and he talks about it in the context of high-conflict cases. And Biff stands for brief, informative, friendly, and firm. So when you get a nasty email or what you interpret as a nasty email from your child's other parent and your initial reaction may be to dish out in kind, you know, you should step aside a little bit, think about it for, for a moment and you can respond, but that response should be brief, informative, friendly, and firm, no editorials, no emotion. And that often de-escalates the situation. And then if you get into a habit of communicating this way, um, it becomes very helpful over time. And, you know, if you don't take the bait that's being put out there by the other parent, that may take the wind out of that parent's sails and make them realize there's no point uh, baiting anymore because you're just not going to engage. So uh, I think you um, uh, contributed a lot to um, how to think about these issues, Catherine. And I Thank you very much for that. You're clearly um, very experienced in these areas and your unique expertise related to body work and breath and your your coaching experience is very helpful. So we're coming to the end of the episode, but uh, as my listeners know, uh, I do something at the end of each interview. And uh, as you may know, I'm not sure I mentioned this to you already, one of my favorite podcasts out there is Alan Alda's Clear and Vivid. And he has this wonderful podcast device where he asks his uh, guests seven questions. I'm not going to ask you seven questions, but I'm going to ask you three about one of my favorite topics, which is food. Are you ready? Oh, sure. <laughs> okay. So here's question number one. What is your favorite food or cuisine, Catherine? Well, for probably, I don't know how long now, at least 11 or 12 years, um, I have been pescatarian vegetarian. So I do like very simply prepared fish and salad. Uh, I also love soup, including bouillabaisse. Love bouillabaisse. <laughs> Yes. And, and, and what, what makes that special for you? What, what about this cuisine? I happen to be a pescatarian vegetarian uh, myself. I think you may already know that because we had lunch in Florida a couple of years ago and we might have had a discussion about that. What makes it, makes this special for you? 
Well, I like the bouillabaisse because there's a lot of intermingling of flavors. And, um, and frankly, I, I just like the comfort and warmth of the broth <laughs> as well. <laughs> and question number three, what is your favorite restaurant anywhere in the world, Catherine? Well, that is a tough one. So I hope you don't mind if I give you three. And the first That's one, perfect. the first one I will say, you know, you mentioned uh, Florida. There's this great restaurant that is uh, run by Philippe uh, uh, Boy, who is from France, and his lovely American wife, Lisa. They call it Shave Away. Uh, it's in Naples, Florida, and it's very close to the marina there. So I love that place. And they make fabulous bouillabaisse, I must say. Also very, very good margaritas. Uh, and then I also <laughs> like a, a new restaurant that I've just discovered called Chez Mathilde, which is in Tadoussac, Quebec. Uh, fantastic yes. place. Very good uh, service. Excellent food. And then, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, I, I spent quite a bit of time in the UK uh, doing my degree. And there is a wonderful Italian restaurant there in Piccadilly Square called Chichetti. So those, I would say, are my three tops. Yeah. Fabulous. So, Shema Thiel, did you just discover this during your recent trip to Tadisac, or is this, a, uh, have you been there before? No, uh, it's, a, it's a recent discovery. Uh, I just went up to Tadisac to do whale watching, which was wonderful, very exciting, very moving, and I uh, discovered this fabulous restaurant and, uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. It was great. So we both think whale watching is uh, emotional and inspiring. Uh, we saw whales most recently um, on a trip to Grand Manan, uh, New Brunswick, and uh, we went on a day-long trip, and that, uh, I agree, was a very, very moving experience seeing seeing whales over the course of a day. So, Yeah, I'd like to go. I'd actually like to go to New Brunswick and Nova Scotia because I know, and Newfoundlanders areas where you can whale watch, but this, of course, is the northern part of Quebec and we saw minkies we saw uh fin whales and the um humpback whales they're so huge but when they dive and that beautiful tail comes up it's just so graceful and so gorgeous I mean when I first saw it yeah you know, I really did you know Absolutely. feel like <laughs> It was it was very yeah. touching and moving for me too. Uh Catherine, thank you very much for taking uh, uh the time to uh speak with me today. I know my listeners will enjoy our interview. And um I know we live in a busy world, particularly challenging during COVID. So I know there's a lot of juggling involved. Once again, thank you very much. And uh Catherine's, this is to my listeners, Catherine's email address and uh, website will be included in the episode notes. So if you'd like to contact her uh, directly, you will know how to find her. Thank you very much again, Catherine. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much. It was really great, AJ. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com. Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app will make future episodes available to you automatically. Signing off for now.